Michael Knowles is the celebrated host of The Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire and The Book Club at PragerU and Verdict with Ted Cruz. Michael, thanks so much for joining us on Takeaways. Well, thank you for having me. It's always great to be with you. I've said it before. I'm, I'm such a big fan of your work. My son is a great big fan of your work. And uh, uh, it's just, it's, it's an honor to talk with you also because I know you're, you're a man who really recognizes the uniqueness of America in the world and appreciates uh, its history. You appreciate the ideals that we've been trying to live up to. And yet you're also honest about our past and our history. Um, let's talk about patriotism. Uh, this is the land of the free and the home of the brave. Uh, we talk about being proud to be Americans, but is that so true today? Well, certainly not today among our ruling class. I think among ordinary Americans, if you went out and just picked an American at random, I think patriotism is still in vogue. But in terms of our, our ruling class uh, in the government, in corporate America, in the educational systems, in sports even, I don't think that's true. Among that crew, patriotism is not in vogue at all. Among that crew, America is the worst country ever, and we are uniquely culpable for all the worst sins in history, and America invented slavery, and it's the most oppressive, terrible, awful place to everyone other than straight white men, and specifically men who know that they're men. And of course, none of that is true, but that's, <laughs> that's been the revisionist narrative that has been created. And so we're, we're at a place now where the people who are attacking the American flag, the people who are attacking patriotism, are not just some wackos on a college campus, not, so, not just some fringe radicals in the streets. It's actually the people who occupy the halls of power in our country. That's a change that's only taken place over the last five to seven years. And that's a very dangerous situation for the country. Why do you think things are moving in this negative, regressive way in our country? What are the forces at work? Contrary to what is taught in public schools today, America is a Christian nation, has always been a Christian nation. The earliest moments of our country, long before the founding fathers came around and waged the Revolutionary War, those very early moments on the Mayflower at Plymouth Rock, those were Christian zealots who landed there. And uh, then, the, and they, they left the, the motherland, their old country, because they weren't permitted to be zealously Christian enough there. So uh, that, that, that tradition has existed throughout American history, even at the time of, of the so-called founding in 1776. The vast majority of the founding fathers were Christian. Some had more deistic or liberal beliefs, but overwhelmingly they were Christian. Uh, even uh, John Adams, who is sometimes credited with saying America is in no way a Christian nation. Uh, that's a lie, by the way. That, that line comes from the Treaty of Tripoli. It was a diplomatic document that John Adams did not write. It was simply to assuage uh, Muslim pirates who were imprisoning American sailors. Uh, when you look to the actual writings of John Adams, he mm. said that the Christian morality is the morality of America. There was never any separation of church and state in the United States. That phrase just comes from one private letter of Thomas Jefferson, who was probably one of, if not the most liberal of the founding fathers. And even his relationship to Christianity is much more complicated than all of that. When you look to the Constitution, there is no separation of church and state. You can uh, try, as, try as you might to find that phrase. You won't find it. The Establishment Clause does uh, prohibit the federal government from creating 
a national established church. But the reason for that is not because the church can't have anything to do with government. It's because the states already had established churches at that time. And those church establishments persisted for decades after the ratification of the Constitution. In God We Trust has been a motto in the United States long before the 1950s when when, uh, a lot of people will say that we added such similar phrases to the the Pledge of Allegiance or uh, it's been on our money for a very long time and it's been in the American ethos for a long time. When George Washington gives a Thanksgiving address, Who's he giving thanks to? He's not giving thanks just to Martha. He's not giving thanks just to his uh, friends and family right. at the dinner table. He's, he's giving thanks to God. And, and uh, you, you see Christianity throughout, uh, Christian practice throughout the founding of America, throughout American history, but, but also the idea of America and the ideas that animate America are Christian. Without Christianity, America would be unthinkable. Michael, what's the difference between patriotism and nationalism? People are conflating these two terms. And so if you're waving a flag, does that make you a nationalist? Unfortunately, there is no really clear answer here because people use the term nationalism to mean a whole bunch of different things. Patriotism is simple enough. Patriotism is love of country. And patriotism is totally natural and right and just and good. Just as it is right and just and natural for you to love your own parents, the extension of that filial piety is patriotism, to love your country. Nationalism is a a system of world order that uh, really comes into to vogue after the Peace of Westphalia that ends the Thirty Years' War, and it says that uh, the, the world order moving forward is going to be a system of nation-states. And so as uh, nationalism began to spread throughout the world, we still see national movements today from broader territories and empires into different nations. Uh, William F. Buckley Jr., who was one of the founders of the post-war conservative movement, he said that he was entirely a patriot, but he didn't have a drop of nationalism in him. Rich Lowry, who's the current editor of William F. Buckley Jr.'s paper, says that he doesn't even really know what that means. What what does that uh, phrase mean? Nationalism is sometimes uh, used to suggest that uh, you're a Nazi or a fascist or, I don't know, some evil sort of person. Uh, To me, they're they're much the same phrase right now. And uh, when I hear someone describe himself as a nationalist, I think what he's saying is that he prefers the nation state to a kind of global empire where borders are erased, where people's traditions and rights are erased, where people's sovereignty is erased. Uh, And so while patriotism might be that love of country, nationalism is calling for a certain order to the world. And I think an order that is much more preferable to the kind of squishy, icky, liberal globalism that we've seen creep about in recent decades. Do you think that it's important for those of us who love America to acknowledge and have discussions about America's imperfections, both the imperfections of the past and the ones that we still have today? Perhaps, but we're overdoing it. It reminds me of of, uh, sometimes when people talk about an unpopular figure in your personal life, maybe, or even in political life. They'll say, look, so-and-so is not perfect, okay? And, but, and then they'll go on and list his good qualities. And I think it's such a useless phrase. Of course he's not perfect. Nobody's perfect. We know that. We can move on. Let's talk about what really matters here. And I think the constant harping on the, the 
bad things that have happened in America's past are really just a political strategy to denigrate the country in order to radically transform it. Don't, don't forget, when Barack Obama uh, was running for president, he said that his plan was to fundamentally transform America. And I thought, well, hold on. You say that you love America, but then you say you want to fundamentally transform America. Generally speaking, we don't want to fundamentally transform things that we love. If, if I came home to my wife and I said, honey, I love you so much. You're so wonderful. I can't wait to fundamentally transform you. I think she'd probably <laughs> raise an eyebrow, and, and rightly so. Uh, so th- th- sometimes uh, slavery is called America's original sin, which I think is preposterous because not only did America not invent slavery, but America tolerated slavery for a much shorter period of time than virtually anywhere else in the world. Slavery continues to exist today in Africa, in East Asia, in South Asia, in the Middle East. Uh, pretty much the only place that slavery no longer exists is in the West and in America. So uh, obviously, slavery, very bad thing. We fought a very bloody civil war to, to get rid of it. But to call it America's original sin, I don't even know what that means. Furthermore, I know it's not America's original sin because original sin is America's original sin, <laughs> because this is a fallen yeah. world filled with imperfection uh, that is... Uh, run by imperfect people, you and I included. So that, that I think, is, is really silly. Uh, sometimes people will point to the conquest of the Native Americans as uh, the imperfection of America. Again, I find this very silly because all of the, one, we cr- established treaties, some of which we honored with the Native Americans. Two, a lot of the Native American tribes were doing really awful things. I mean, I think of for d- down in South America, the Aztecs, uh, you know, were basically the worst political body that has ever existed on earth. They worshiped demons and they slaughtered 84,000 people, women, babies, children alike in the course of four days at the consecration of Tenochtitlan. So please don't convince me that this was a Pocahontas uh, uh, utopia because that that was not what was happening. This was a conflict of cultures and it was a really wonderful thing. In the case of Latin America, when Hernan Cortez came down, conquered the Aztecs and spread Christianity. That was a good thing. That's not a kind of colonialism for which people ought to apologize. And so you you see similar things playing out in the United States. One point of of, uh, dispute right now is over Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is a symbol of the American nation, got these great U.S. presidents on there. And some anti-American activists will say, this is awful, it's stolen land. That land belongs to the Lakota Sioux Indians, and we have to give back Mount Rushmore. And whenever someone suggests this, I say, well, hold on one second here. I'm not in principle opposed necessarily to uh, having some treaty with Native Americans, but why would we give it to the Lakota Sioux? Because the Lakota Sioux did not spring up from the earth on Mount Rushmore. No, the Lakota Sioux conquered that area in 1776, coincidentally. They conquered that area from the Cheyenne. So why on earth would we give that, that territory back to the Lakota when the Lakota took the territory at least as unjustly as we did from the Cheyenne Indians? There are plenty of other Indian tribes that did as well. And so every single issue like this, you, you see from the kind of anti-American revisionists uh, holding America to a completely different standard and excusing all the other crimes of every other people on earth and refusing to acknowledge all of the wonderful blessings that have mm. come out of the United States right. of America. And so to me, there's nothing fair of, about that. It's, it's simply an attack on the country. Is it just as big of a mistake to neglect talking about America's 
true uniqueness and greatness and not only its blessings for those of us who live here, but the blessing that America has been to the rest of the world? Oh, of course. It's, it's that sort of problem that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. <laughs> or, you know, you, you complain about your parents when you're growing up. And then once you're out of the house or once your parents are gone, you think, gosh, I really didn't appreciate that. Or I didn't appreciate them quite as much. I promise you, no matter how much you're complaining about America now, you will miss America when America is gone. And even when you look at the structure of the government, it's an amazing thing. I was recently going back and rereading a little bit of my Thomas Aquinas. I was reading the Summa Theologiae. And in the Summa Theologiae, this is the sum of all theological knowledge, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, discusses pretty much every question under the sun. What should you have for breakfast on Tuesdays, you know, and everything in between. And, uh, and he takes up this issue of the ideal regime. I was reading it, and he says, the ideal regime, should it be a monarchy? Should it be an aristocracy? Should it be a democracy? And he says the ideal regime would have elements of all of those things. There would be an executive, and then there would be some representation for the aristocratic element, which exists in all societies. And then the people in the demos, in the democracy, would have a considerable amount of say as well. And I was reading that, and I thought, oh my goodness, the founding fathers, the framers of the Constitution, must have known their Thomas Aquinas, because the American system of government balances all of those things. We have an executive, obviously. Then we've got a role for the aristocracy, the, the various interests, say, of the states and other vested interests. You see that especially in the Senate. Then you've got a, a place for the people in the democracy, especially in the House of Representatives. This incredible balance of power and interests, to say nothing of the, the balance between the well, the three branches of government, then the people in the states and the national level. It's just, it's a, a remarkable balance mm. that we, the American people, have done everything we possibly can to destroy <laughs> over the course of 200 plus years. But I, I looked at that and I said, that's a very special thing in history. And I don't know when you're going to see it again and you're going to miss it when it's gone. Michael, after the break, uh, let's talk more about what made America what makes it so great, and what each of us can do to protect those great values. And we're back with Michael Knowles. Michael, remind us about what is good, what is beautiful, and what is blessed about America. Why is it so special? Part of it is the idea, and we hear a lot about America as an idea, and there are all sorts of wonderful aspects of America as an idea. Uh, America as a country that recognizes that people have certain rights given to them by their creator. Uh, a country that recognizes that there is a natural law that is also given to us by our creator. A country with a strong Christian tradition and a, tr a tradition of industry that can create material prosperity, but, but a, a nation that is perhaps uniquely earnest, sincere, charitable, that has a, a long history of voluntary civic associations, that has, has, or at least had, and unfortunately is losing to a great degree, subsidiarity, a, a lot of local control, put, pushing power and rights and the ability to govern oneself to the most local level possible, and then uh, only when, when uh, a, a local level is insufficient to carry out all of those responsibilities do we go up a little further to the county or to the state or ultimately to the federal government. I mean, it's, it's got mm. such wonderful, so, so many wonderful ideas there in America. 
So is it okay to say that I'm proud to be an American? Is that, is that being filled with unrighteous pride? Or uh, is there a sense in which patriotism should characterize us? Should we put the flag out? Uh, you know, I've got a flag on the back of my truck as I'm driving down the road. Is that a, a sign of, 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 of healthy thinking? Or is, is, that, is that a bunch of pride that we should get rid of? Uh, you know, it's funny you mention that, Kirk. I have a, uh, a flag in the back windshield of my car. I'd, I'm not uh, quite s- uh, Southern yet enough to have a giant pickup truck. I moved to Tennessee about a year and a half ago. I'm looking <laughs> forward to that. Right now, I still have the sedan. But I, I do fly the flag in the back windshield. And no, that's not an unhealthy pride that goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When we say I'm proud of my country, uh, we, we mean that in much the same way as you would say I'm proud of my kid or I'm proud of my family. We mean that in the sense that we love it and we're grateful for it. And so in, understood in that way, pride is, is not the original sin of man, the, the queen of all vices, uh, but pride is an extension of, of the love of one's own kin, the extension of, of a filial piety that you have for your parents. It's, mm. it's not only natural and, uh, to, to love your country, it's not only acceptable to love your country, it's good. You should love your country. If you don't love your country, something has gone wrong with you or your country or both. Michael, what's at stake if we lose our patriotism? What could happen to America if we stop loving her? Well, we will just devour America. We will just consume it all up. We have two million people coming into this country illegally, which presents a challenge in and of itself and is encouraged for the selfish reasons of politicians and certain corporate interests as well. And, and th- that's a great fear. When, uh, when you, you view the country as a beautiful thing, a beautiful inheritance from your forefathers to protect and to leave a little better off than you found it, that's a healthy way to view a country. John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. When you cease to have that kind of reverence and gratitude for your country, when you simply look at it as a way to enrich yourself, then you will consume it from within. Uh, In the case of illegal immigration, it's because Democrats in the country believe that they will get more votes and it will help them at the ballot box. Mm. And statistically, I suppose that's, that's probably true. So that's why they encourage the lawlessness of erasing our borders. Unfortunately, corporate interests in the Republican Party haven't been much better here because they recognize that by fl- flooding the country with low-skilled labor, they can reduce labor costs and have a, a wider uh, uh, labor base, which allows industry to, to continue. And uh, furthermore, when you've got an aging population that has a lot of entitlements that are going to be coming to them, you need to maintain GDP even as the, the nation's birth rate is, and marriage rates are declining. So all of that, those are political and economic and, and business, commercial reasons f- for which people are not, not enforcing the rule of law, disrespecting our, our democracy in this country, the rule of self-government. And that's just one issue among so many. It, it shows you a pivot in that kind of thinking away from how do I improve my country? How do I leave my children a better country than I found it? Mm. To a question of how can my, how can my country benefit me right now. Well, that, that is an, an attitude of consumption. And eventually, once we've, <laughs> once we've devoured all the wonderful things about this country, then we're just going to start eating ourselves. Perhaps, perhaps we've already started to do that. I heard someone say very wisely one time that we ought to have a healthy love for our faith. We have to have a healthy love for our family and a healthy love for our country. And 
I think sadly, many people within the family of faith sort of discount that love for country because they think what's really important is my personal relationship with God and my family. The problem this person pointed out though was that if you don't have a love for your country and you don't take care of your country, particularly a country like America that gives you freedom to raise your children and to publicly profess and practice your faith, that kind of government that's running your country will go so rogue that it will take your children away from you, brainwash and indoctrinate them and put you in prison for your faith. So you better love your country. You better invest in that. It's really, really important. You have to, because I know sometimes these days it's become fashionable to suggest that Christianity is somehow just a, just a private religion. It's just for what you do in, in your own home, maybe if you're allowed to go to church on Sunday. Yeah. But, but that is not the case. Uh, Christianity is a public and political religion. We are called to go forth and make disciples of the nations. We are called forth to, uh, toward justice. Uh, in, uh, our Lord tells us, actually, that when two or more of you are gathered, there, there I am also, meaning this is a communal sort of church. The mystical body of Christ is, is communal, obviously. It's not just an individual against the world. And, and so we, we do have these obligations. Uh, to, to make sure that we have a, a place that is just and beautiful and thriving. You know, there's nothing Christian about letting cruel people uh, prey on all of the innocent people all around our country and all around the world. We, we have a responsibility to do that because every government has ultimately a religious way of thinking. All human conflict ultimately mm. is theological. Great point. That, that's just, that, that's what government is. I mean, whether we're talking about our policies on the death penalty or whether we're talking about the fine for a parking ticket, we're, we're weighing moral considerations when we think about the relationship of, of the individual to the state and to his own communities, we're taking into account moral considerations. And so you, you need some moral way of, of viewing the world. And, and as that great political philosopher Bob Dylan said, everybody's got to serve somebody. So who are That's you right. serving? Are you going to have a godly country or an ungodly country? Well, I, I tell you, even for the agnostics and the atheists out there, you will prefer to live in the godly country than in the ungodly one. In the That's ungodly right. country, things get real bad real quick. That's right. Now, now, Michael, we have the Declaration of Independence, we have the Bill of Rights, we have the Constitution. So aren't we good? I mean, aren't the American values protected by those things? Unfortunately, Kirk, those are just pieces of paper with ink on them. <laughs> so they're really great pieces of paper with ink on them, but those documents and $1.50 will get you a cup of coffee if you don't have a people that's willing to put them into practice. Actually, that's not fair. We have a lot of inflation right now, so you'd probably need about four fifty to get the cup of coffee. But the point remains, today, the way that our country functions is different from the, from the way it's supposed to function according to that piece of paper. And there's going to be some divergence over time, but we need to be aware of that. And we need to recognize that as we stop defending and protecting and enacting the, the uh, vision of government that you see in the Declaration and the Federalist Papers and the Constitution, it's just going to disappear and no piece of parchment is going to protect it for us. So, Michael, what are maybe one or two simple things that each of us can do to display healthy patriotism in our communities? Something that I've noticed really disappear that was so prominent when I was a kid, it's how I was raised, and these days it's really disappeared is respect the flag. 
I know it seems trivial. I know it's, it seems like the, it should be priority number 300 on the list of things to do. But really it's important because the flag is the symbol of the country. And as you treat that symbol, so too will you treat this country. When I was a, a kid, if a flag in our home or outside or anywhere touched the ground, my mother said, you pick up that flag. You gotta, you, you, we cannot let the flag touch the ground. Some years ago on Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, a staffer took a picture of a crumpled up flag on the ground. And I don't think the person even meant to give offense. She just said, okay, getting ready for the rally later. You know, we're going to hang up this flag. The person didn't even realize how disrespectful that was uh. to, to, the symbol, to the symbol of the country and therefore to the country. If we, if we treat the flag as something worth respecting, we are much more likely to, to treat the country in that way too. To, today, if you, if you went out and burned a rainbow flag, you might very well be arrested. I mean, you would be ostracized. People would be absolutely shocked. If you did the same thing to an American flag, you would probably be applauded. Uh, that's a standard that is really radical, that's very new, and we, we really need to shift that back again. A, a healthy understanding of standards and taboos, which have been totally upended in the last 50 mm. years, if we can bring those sorts of things back, back I, I think that that would do a great deal in our day-to-day -day lives to restore some, some patriotism. Hi, I'm Kirk Cameron. Thanks for listening to this episode of Takeaways. If you love the conversations that we're having, please follow or subscribe to this podcast to never miss any of this great content. And please consider leaving a positive rating and a review to help others like you discover this show.